about two months ago, uh, we shared an idea concept with uh, several of my colleagues, and we decided to ask one question to 12 individuals in our congregation. And the question was, who is your favorite Bible character? And uh, I was surprised because nobody, out, outside of Jesus Christ, obviously, nobody asked to for the same individual. The 12 have different choices. And some of them are very original, very interesting. And then we invited the 12 to speak for about seven minutes about that special person in the Bible. And today we start that series with three individuals. The first one is going to be... Uh, Stephanie, and she will talk about Hulda. Initially, she decided to go with Deborah, but later on, the Spirit moved her to switch to Hulda. And then Sue Smith, she will talk to us about Peter, and Von Nelson about Job. And then I will try to find something in common between the three characters. So may the Lord bless uh, these three godly individuals as they share the good news through the ministry of these three individuals in the Bible. Okay, I need help for this. So, I have asked Megan and Ian to come up here. I have also asked Teacher Noemi Talamante to keep track of my time. She's going to tell me three minutes, one minute, and then Pastor Julio, I, if you can find a hook, I give you permission to pull me off the stage. Please do it gently, though. Gently, gently. Okay, so uh, Megan and Ian, please come on up. Now, there are going to be some questions that are asked, and I want congregation to respond. So, here we go. Exactly who is Hulda? Raise your hand. Come on, everyone, raise your hand. Okay, okay, now we're gonna, we're gonna take a step back. I see, uh, Dr. Tom knows who it is, but we're gonna take a step back. There are a couple of key figures in this. There is a King Josiah. Who knows what King Josiah did? Oh, we got a hand there. Okay. And someone has to answer on this side because that's where Ian goes. So we want Ian to have something to do. All right. Okay, ladies, one of you, please. <laughs> he was good little king, and he was put on the throne as a child because while his grandmother tried to kill him. Okay, um, and what did Josiah do? What was he responsible for? Or what did he feel called by God to do? Rebuild the temple. And there was someone else who was really important in this process. Does anyone know? Not his uncle. No, there was a priest, a specific priest. Not Samuel, Daniel. I think you know the answer to this one. Ian, go go take it to Daniel. A specific priest. It's Hilkiah. Hilkiah, correct. Hilkiah. Now, Hilkiah found something. He found a scroll. And this wasn't just any type of scroll. It wasn't a warm, fuzzy Psalms, the Lord is my shepherd. No, 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 no. This was doom and gloom. Okay, you read this and you go, oh dear, and insert whatever expletive or word you might think of. Not good news. He looks at it and basically his kingdom's going to come 
to an end. It's going to be destroyed. There's going to be nothing left. He's scared. He wants to know what's going to happen. So then he also wants to find out, is this God's word or not? Is this really God saying that this is what's going to happen? So this is the next step where someone else comes into the picture. Well, Megan, who was it? Who comes into the picture now? Does someone else know? Indira, do you know who comes into the picture? With the scroll, who do they take the scroll to? They take the scroll to, Megan, can you tell us? Halda, put the mic up, girl. You can do the mic. There we go, Halda. They take the, the scroll to Halda, and she reads it, and she takes time, and she prays about it. And then she tells the king, yes, this is God's word. This is from God. We need to listen to what this says. We need to change the way that we're living our lives. She talks to the king. And there's also something very interesting here. When she refers to the king, she says, tell the man who sent you. Oh, no, three minutes. Okay, thank you, Naomi. <laughs> tell him. She was secure in God. She knew what her role was. She knew that she was safe to refer to the king as him. Now, if you're going to be telling the king bad news, your kingdom is coming to an end, everything's over, are you feeling really safe and secure? No. No, you don't, you don't want to bring the bearer of bad news. And she actually did have something there that she said. She said, Josiah, because of the way you have lived, because you are wanting to serve God, you will die in peace. You will not see the end of the kingdom. It will come afterwards. So, why is this my favorite character? Growing up, reading the Bible, especially as a girl, even now as a woman, I look at her and I go, there aren't that many times where women are addressed or God uses them. Now, I asked the kids in my Sabbath school class, I said, do you, know, do you feel like that you can fit into the Bible? Do you feel like there's a part of the Bible for you? Would your story fit in there? Sadly, there weren't that many that said yes. When you think about it, how many of us who are, you know, the different aspects of us, race, job status, um, economical, I mean, anything. Think about the things that we divide and categorize people by what they can and can't do. Now, as an English major, someone who loves literature, who loves reading, to think about this woman all the way back in Bible times, who was a literary scholar, reading and praying and asking God's guidance. Do you know what this means? Halda started a process of looking at scrolls, praying, putting together a canon, forming what we have as the Old and the New Testament. It's, it's amazing that God used that. Now, last question. So what exactly was the scroll that she found? Who do we, what do we think? Uh, the book of the law. Book of the law. Also, there's enough sections of it that when you look at the way that King Josiah changed and everything switched, it was the book of Deuteronomy, at least good portions of it. So, 
for me, the character of Halda says that I cannot, and I want to suggest here that we cannot limit God to who he can and he cannot use. He can't, we cannot say because of our perspective of who has value, who does not have value, who is more capable, who is not capable, race, ethnicity, gender, politics, orientation, whatever you want to put in there, we cannot say that God can't use someone else. So we had our kids here that when I gave them a chance to ask questions and take mics, they were very willing to do so. Please know that God can use you. Know that God can use the person next to you and give our children and give everyone in this church a place. God loves us. He can change us. And I think my seven minutes are up. Thank you. Morning. I want to show you something that maybe you did when you were a kid. This is before I went to medicine. Did you ever do this? There. Did you ever do that when you're in school? You do it to your friend. Let me see if I can do that. Sometimes people use rulers. What's that called? Why did I do that? It's a reflex. I didn't have to study. I didn't have to think about it. It's a reflex. Well, let me tell you about my friend Peter. He had this certain kind of a reflex. He thought, he felt, no filter, and he would do and say. That's the way Peter did it. Um, No filter, that was his reflex, just automatically. I want to tell you just three stories. Whenever you hear stories in in the New Testament about Jesus, Peter, James, and John, Peter, James, and John, so Peter's my buddy. Um, I'm going to bring you to Matthew 16, and... The disciples and Jesus spent a lot of time, not always with the crowds, they were hanging out together. And I can imagine them laying maybe in the grass, sitting on the rocks, eating some lunch. And Jesus gives, uh, gives them a question. Who are people saying I am? You know, they've been together a while now. Well, it says they answered, the other disciples, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, some of the other prophets. That's what people are saying. And then the million-dollar question which I personally believe is the reason you're here in the world, who do you say I am? Well, who answers that in a heartbeat? Peter, he knows the right answer. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. He just pops right out. He knows it. Now, that's Matthew 16, verses 13 through 17. A few verses down, just a few verses, he gives this great, wonderful answer. You are the Christ. Then he turns around. Jesus is trying to prepare his closest friends for what's coming. He says, you know, I'm going to be going to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer many things. I'm going to be killed, but I'm going to rise again. Well, the Bible in Matthew says, I can just picture this. Peter took him aside. Can you picture this? You're talking to Obama. Obama has something to say, but you take him aside because you know a little bit better. Peter has just said, you are the Christ, but he pulls him aside, and it says he began to rebuke him. Peter began to rebuke Jesus, who he just said was the son of the living God. He said, never, Lord, this shall never happen. So he's talking to to God and says, this isn't going to happen. And Jesus' response was very severe. Satan, get thee behind me. 
that's pretty severe for somebody that just had the right answer. He said, you're a stumbling block to me. You don't have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Woohoo! I mean, it's like yin and yang here. Peter's right on, and he's way off. I'm going to move now to John 13. This is near the end. They're having their last Passover dinner together. And Jesus sees that none of the disciples are going to get down. There's nobody to wash the feet. So Jesus wraps his towel around him, and he goes down to wash the feet of the disciples. And Peter, the very righteous Peter, says, Lord, you are not going to wash my feet. And Jesus says, no, you don't understand now, but you will understand later. But Peter persists. He says, no, you shall never wash my feet. And then Jesus says to him, unless I wash your feet, you have no part in me. Well, I think the filter went up at that point. And Peter says the most beautiful thing, Lord, not just my feet, my hands, my head. He got it that time. He got it. Then I'm going to bring you a little bit further to that evening. Jesus is really trying to help these men understand what's coming. He didn't lead them blindly. He said, this very night, you will all fall away on account of me. Well, they just had the triumphal entry. It's a wonderful, happy time. Jerusalem has welcomed them. And Peter, and it says, insisted emphatically, even if all fall away, I won't. I won't. No, I won't. And it says the others agreed. (laughs) Peter's always right out there. And Jesus, and we know how this story goes, but Jesus, they all fell away. But Jesus looks at Peter and he said, I'm telling you, tonight before the crow, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Well, Peter still thinks he knows himself so well. And it it says it a couple different ways in a couple of the um, Gospels. He says in one place, even if I have to die with you, I won't disown you. And then he turns around and he says, I'm ready to go to prison and death with you. I'm not going to disown you. He's so sure of himself. He's so sure. And then we went to the Garden of Gethsemane. We know how that went. Couldn't even stay awake. And the guards come, and Peter, being brave, tries to cut off the ear of a servant. You know, Peter, he's kind of a mess. He did exactly that Jesus said. He denied Jesus three times in the most horrible way. And as we know from Sister Ellen, Jesus and Peter caught each other's eye. And he knew, he knew himself better at that moment. And he ran away, and it said he wept bitterly. Now, there were two men that out and out denied Jesus, disowned him that night. One was Peter, who wept bitterly. The other was Judas, who decided he had disowned Jesus too much and went out and hanged himself. In John 21, by this time, Jesus has resurrected. They've seen him twice already. And Peter, I think, still doesn't know what to do with himself. In John 21, he says, I'm going out to fish. Isn't that a funny thing to say? All this is going on. Somebody's been raised from the dead. They've seen him twice. And what's he say? I'm going to go out and fish. That's what Peter knows how to do. So he's going to go back to fishing. So they go out all night, catch nothing. 
and in the morning they're exhausted they're probably very frustrated and um they see somebody out out on shore and he says hey friends catching anything nope put your net over on the right hand side of the boat and as they did that of course the fish went into the nets and john looked up he said it's the lord and peter got wind of that well peter being who he is he jumped out of the boat <laughs> went into the water and he greeted Jesus on shore. And Jesus had breakfast ready for them. And this is where Jesus and Peter came face to face for real. Jesus said to him, do you truly love me more than these? I mean, okay. Of course I do, Lord. I love you. I'm going to feed my sheep, feed my lambs. But he doesn't let it go. He does it three times. He asked Peter, Three times, maybe for the three times he denied him. Do you love me? Then take care of my sheep. Do you love me? And you can see probably Peter's guilt and um, everything he's gone through in the last couple uh, days. Feed my sheep. And then Jesus' last words to Peter are, what are they? Follow me. Follow me. Do you know why I like hearing about Peter? I see myself. For good or for bad, I see myself. A little rough around the edges. I want to. I have a heart for the doing the right things. He stays close to Jesus even after he's been rebuked fairly severely for his mistakes and his foolishness. And I like that he bursts out really what he's thinking. You don't have to guess what Peter's thinking because he'll tell you. Boom. Sometimes Peter's right on, and other times he's tremendously far from the truth. But he keeps with it. Do you know that every story and every person in the Bible is you? It's either how you've been, how you are today, or how you might become. Every single story or person in the Bible is you. But the biggest reason that I love Peter it's because of in spite of the incorrect, the sinful, the foolish things he did and said and thought, the Lord never stopped forgiving him. The Lord never stopped loving him. And the Lord didn't stop calling him to himself. And I want to call that as my story today. And I hope it'll be yours. Amen. I like Job. That's my title. Uh, uh, favorite? I don't know, but I like Job. It probably depends on what day you ask me. His story, uh, as you know, starts with a very interesting heavenly wager. God is proud of his servant Job, very proud. But the Satan, the accuser, is there too, and he has a response for God. Um, God. Just for a moment, allow me to play the devil's advocate. Uh, what if life weren't so good for Job? I think these humans are religious and faithful only because they get stuff out of it from you. So stop rewarding them and they'll leave you. And so the wager is set. Overnight, Job loses everything. Not only wealth, but children and his own good health. And it's from that the smoking pile of trash outside the city where Job goes 
that most of the story of Job takes, takes place. Job's friends find him in great suffering, and they join him in silence for seven days. When Job opens his mouth, finally, it's to simply say he wished he'd never been born. God cursed the day that I was born, says Job. At this point, I feel sorry for Job. But I think, unfortunately, that's as far as I can go. Because if I'm honest, I'm not sure I can fully relate to Job. I don't think I've ever wished I had never been born. Uh, quite frankly, if I'm honest with myself, my life has been um, fully, fairly easy. I haven't suffered in this kind of way. I've been sad. Life has been far from perfect. But I think I've lived relatively free of this kind of suffering. I've never gone a day without food or a night without shelter. I've never lost a loved one suddenly. I've never been discriminated against. Uh, I've, my health has been good. So I'm sure, I'm not sure that I know exactly what Job is feeling at this point. But I know others have, and they do feel that way. And in Job's story, I think I begin to understand just that little bit more. Well, Job's friends, um, they can't handle his, his protest, his, his cries. They're uncomfortable with his sorrow. Come on, Job. You shouldn't talk like this. You know better. You know God is just and he only gives punishments where it's deserved. You should, you shouldn't doubt God, Job. Uh, don't question his ways. Just apologize for whatever it's done. Ask forgiveness. Accept your punishment and pray that God will forgive you and we can move on. I don't like Job's friends. But I'm afraid that sometimes I'm like Job's friends. Uh, it's, it's uncomfortable to be around suffering. You know what I mean? It makes me feel unsure of myself. I want to give answers. I'm supposed to give answers, I think. I want to explain, to guide, to correct. Sometimes I even want to defend God. But when I do those things, I'm afraid sometimes those urges make me more like Job's friends. Long on answers and advice, short on care and compassion. But Job, the righteous man who suffers, he's less concerned with easy answers. He neither accepts his circumstances passively. He doesn't just sit there and take it. But neither does he abandon his faith angrily. On the one hand, Job can protest about the unfairness of, of God in the midst of his suffering. He says things that shock us in this book. But at the same time, he can say beautiful, moving things like, For I know, I know that my Redeemer lives. This is a, a mature faith, it seems, that Job has, that is deep enough to question God, but strong enough to never let go of God. In the end, of course, finally, out of the silence, God speaks. But God doesn't come with easy answers either. God doesn't even fix Job's problems quite yet. That comes later. Instead, God confronts Job with all his creative power and majesty. Where were you, Job, when I pieced together this whole cosmos who is it that sustains and protects and nurtures the world? Do you really want to do battle with me, Job? I'm always taken aback when I hear and read God's response here. It's surprising. It's as full of sheer power and majesty as that whirlwind out of which 
it comes. Job is taken aback too. He covers his mouth. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Job's final words. It's not easy to summarize Job's story into one clear point. Here's the lesson. And maybe that's why I like Job. But instead of an easy answer, we have a dramatic and unforgettable story of a man strong enough, even bold enough in his faith, to to question, to struggle, to wrestle with God, like those who had come before him. But wise enough to know when to just stand quietly in awe of God's goodness and God's greatness. I think that's why I like Job. And that's why I want to be more like Job. Thank you, Stephanie and Sue and Paul. That was very good. Um, What do we have in common with these three characters, these three personalities? My first reaction was one word. And I reviewed the three cases over and over again. Then came a second word. And last evening, I'll add a third word. (laughs) And the words are justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Let's see if we can find in the three cases, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. The first one, uh, we find Hulda, who is being visited by the high priest, and he's asking her a question. The punishment that the book of the law, particularly the book of Deuteronomy, mentions about us, is going to take place in our, is going to take place? Is it really going to happen? And Hulda said, yes. But then there is a statement that is so awesome, so remarkable, so beautiful. And it goes like this. But because of Josiah, justice will be delayed. There is a man who started as a king when he was only eight years old. Eight years old, under very difficult circumstances. And he never lost his sense of direction. He never lost his sense of connection with God. And because of his consistency, because of his commitment to God, because of his determination to be faithful to God, God was moved to mercy, delaying the punishment, the judgment right there. The second one is Job. Beautiful story. Job is one of my favorite characters as well. He has 14 characteristics, his story, with the journey of Jesus as a human being here on earth. And there is a problem. The friends came, and they're using arguments that if you read them isolated, they are not that bad. But they reflect our counsel, which many times is biased by sin or by your own experiences or prejudice. And finally, and this is, this is remarkable, in the last chapter of Job, it says that God got angry with them. <laughs> For God to be angry is because it was bad. It was truly bad. And Job was a saint compared to the three who are counseling him. And then there is an encounter. God is chastising the three friends. 
and is doing that in a very severe way. And he says something like this. Because of Job, mercy will be granted to you. I, I see God almost willing to destroy these three men. But Job asked Josiah. It was so committed to God. It was so consistent in his work with God that God can have the luxury of challenging the devil himself. In chapter 1, he said, Have you considered my servant Job? He knows that he's good. He knows that he's consistent. He knows that he's connected. And now, he's going to condition the discipline to these three men to the mercy of Job. And then he says this, You three, you three friends, you have to present sacrifice. You have done a terrible sin. You have been judging. You don't know what you are talking about. I am willing to forgive you if Job prays for you. Now, that prayer has to be genuine. Has to be genuine. If you have been hurt, and God comes to you and says, I'm willing to forgive you, but you have to pray for the individual that hurt you. How would you react? How sincere that would that prayer be? <laughs> it would be, Lord, be merciful to him, but inside, kill him. I hate him. And he, he was noble enough. He was humble enough. He was gracious enough to say, okay. And he prayed. And once he prayed, then justice was extended to them. Now, the word justice means they were declared innocent and God treated them as innocent. How, how do you like when somebody offends you, when somebody forces you into a circumstance that's not favorable? And God challenged you to pray for the individual who offended you. For the individual who is at fault, clearly at fault. How willing are you, how willing am I to pray for that individual in such a way that because of the sincerity of my prayer, he will forgive and declare the other individual innocent. That's a big, big story. Mercy and justice and faithfulness. And the last one, Peter. Peter, I, I like what you said about Peter. Um, it reflects the temperament that so many of us have. In fact, all of us have a little bit of Peter. All of us, even the most patient ones. Uh, and there he's preaching. And in his second most powerful sermon, he said something that probably is the most memorable statement that Peter ever came from the lips of Peter. And he said, Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. What is he saying? What is he saying? He means this, that in spite of the worst sin that you may have committed, in spite of my inconsistencies, in spite of my weaknesses, God is willing to give me a chance. He is willing to pay for my sins. And he was in Calvary dying for your sins 
and for my sins. And therefore, therefore, you are going to be declared innocent. His, Jesus, because of Jesus. First, it was before, because of Josiah. Second, because of Job. But this is the good one. Because of Jesus, mercy was granted to you and to me. And because mercy was granted to you and to me, also justice is fulfilled. It was fulfilled on the cross. He paid the price. It's a legal term. Somebody have to pay for my inconsistence, for my sins. He paid for your sins. He paid for my sins. Therefore, you and I are declared innocent. You and I are treated as innocent. And the picture of Josiah, the picture of Job, and the reality of Jesus claims that to be true. God bless you.